I want the company that I'm building to be pretty much an extension of ourselves. If you build a bottom-up approach, then you basically are building a culture where everyone can come up with the next big idea. But then you build a culture where people are encouraged to cultivate ideas, to bring them up, to try to promote them, to try to promote their agendas and make them happen. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, I'm joined by my colleague, Oren Younger. Hey, Oren. Excited to be here, Glenn. Great. And we're also very excited to welcome Tomer Barzev to the show. Tomer is the co-founder and CEO of Tel Aviv-based IronSource. IronSource powers the app economy, providing a comprehensive business platform for app developers and telecom operators. Originally from Israel, Tomer studied computer science before becoming VP business development at Atlas CT and Pioneer. He co-founded Foxtab before co-founding IronSource in 2010. Tomer's been named one of the 100 most intriguing entrepreneurs by Goldman Sachs and Israel's 40 under 40 most promising entrepreneurs. IronSource launched a successful initial public offering in 2021 after a successful SPAC merger with a valuation of over $11 billion, a topic we're going to discuss today. We're also going to talk about the evolution of IronSource and Tomer's role in the story. Tomer, thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thank you very much, Glenn. Thank you, Oren. Excited to be here with you guys. So we wanted to start a little bit with you personally and your background. As we mentioned, you worked at Microsoft, Pioneer, Atlas CT. And like many of our guests, this isn't the first company founded, not your first rodeo. You started Foxtab in 2009 and from there created IronSource in 2010. What gave you the, the spark to start IronSource? What was the initial vision for the company? So look, it's, uh, it's a bit of a different story than uh, what you're used to see from uh, the regular entrepreneur. I started IronSource out of pure necessity. I was uh, an entrepreneur trying to do different stuff that wasn't very successful. And I had two options, either go get a real job or give it one more try. I remember a conversation I had with my dad and some close friends. You know, at that time I was 32. I had uh, one two-year-old baby and one newborn. So I had like some, you know, some pressure to provide for my family. So the easier choice would be to go and get a, a real job, but I just couldn't help it. I needed to uh, give it one more try. By the way, I decided that if yet again, this is going to be uh, unsuccessful, I'm going to go and seek for a real job. But I had to give this one more try. And uh, it was mostly because I wanted to uh, work and to build a company with my co-founders. We can touch that uh, later. And to be able to do this, by the way, I had to, uh, I couldn't, when I say I, I, I was broke, I mean it. I couldn't pay rent anymore. To start Iron Source, I moved with uh, all my family, my wife and my two girls, to the second floor of my parents' house because I had to uh, lower the burn rate. So going back to your parents' house at the age of 32, out of necessity, is not the funnest thing to, to do. But this is how it started. So it, it wasn't me and other and few co-founders with a great idea of how we're going to change the world. To me, it was uh, a burn, you know, necessity. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to build a startup. I knew 
I wanted to do it with uh, my co-founders. And this is how it started. It's, it's, uh, it's a bit of a different story than what you're used to, I guess. It's a real story of perseverance. Yes. And I like that cutting, you know, we always talk to entrepreneurs who are, you know, having to get through to a milestone through a, maybe a tougher time about cutting the burn rate at the company. But thinking about cutting your burn rate at the family level, that requires a lot of commitment, not only from you, but, you know, your spouse and absolutely your parents, your kids, everyone's got to be bought in. So this was a family affair from day one, it sounds like. It was. It really, really was. Well, it takes a village, they say. That's That's awesome. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about Iron Source. You know, what does the company do? Who do you sell to, et cetera? So Iron Source is a business platform for the app economy. Simply put, we help content creators focus on creating great content. Well, we help them take that content and transform it into a scalable, successful business. It really derives from the fact that we all spend a lot of time on our phones every day doing everything. If it's entertainment, social media, uh, work, everything is done on our phones. We spend 83% of the time we spend on our phones is spent in apps. Uh, we, we all download billions of those apps every year to our devices. But what people often uh, forget or don't think about is that each and every app out there is someone else's business. It's so easy today to develop an app, a game, a utility, but it's so, so hard to transform that into a successful business. So we've built this uh, platform so we can help uh, content creators concentrate on creating great content while we help them with all the rest. And when we think about the app economy, we identify two main constituents that build this app economy. Those are on one end, the app developers, and on the second end, the telecom operators. And we have one platform, the Alonso's platform, really solving these two constituents in the app economy. Tommy, you rejected an offer to sell Iron Source in the early days, and we just talked about how tough the early days were. And now Iron Source is a public company, so you definitely made the right decision. But what foresight did you have? And I guess, what uh, uh, did you tell your, your family at that time that uh, allowed you to uh, you know reject the, the offer and push forward? Which is a problem a lot of founders are, uh, not a problem, but a, a, good, a good problem to have with a lot of founders. Sure. Look, to put it into context, right? To try to understand the context of that timing, right? The time we got the first offer, it was maybe six or seven months after we started operating. At that point, I'm living with my, my whole family at my parents' house. Few months before I couldn't pay rent, we started the company without a huge idea of how we're going to change the world. Just a bunch of us knowing we want to do stuff together. And again, long story short, within a few months, we got the first offer to sell the company. It was for $18.18 million when the four of us, we own 100% of the company and I'm living with my parents. But to me, this is a very important point in time in the history of Alonso's and in my personal journey, because although it pretty much started by mistake or by you know necessity of us wanting to do something together and for me to be able to pay rent again and uh, for the second time in my, in my life, be able to leave my parents' house, very, very early on, we understood we have something real in our hands. We couldn't imagine it will become this big, right? But we knew we have something in our hands. We absolutely knew we love working together and we were just getting started. And when we got the first offer, it's, it was not just a general offer, right? It's, if we sign the paper, it's done. We sell the company for $18 million. And at the very, very end of that process, one of my co-founders, Itai, called us and said, hey, 
how about we we stick together, we roll the dice, and we continue building this, and let's see what happens. I think we can do better. And we're having fun, and that's what matters. And surprisingly, it took him only two minutes to convince uh, the rest of us. Still, when I look in retrospect at that point in time, I really, really don't understand what were we thinking. I, I really, I don't know how to explain that. It's, it's, it's something that either you feel in your bones, because it's not rational. Surely not for me at my personal situation at the time. But I'm so, so happy uh, we did that. Not just because of the numbers that followed, right? But the journey, being able to imagine the level of conviction you need to have, or, or in other words, level of craziness you need to have to say no to such offer. And to me, when we said no, when we rejected that offer, it was the first point in time where I knew this is going to be my life mission. I'm going to build the biggest and most successful company I can possibly can. And again, it didn't start that way. But when we said no to that offer, it really became my life mission to build Iron Source into the biggest, most successful company I possibly can. That's an amazing story. And I think every founder needs to have this high level of, of craziness. One, to reject a, a good offer, but two, to, uh, uh, to build a big company. So kudos to you and to uh, Itai, your founder, to convince you. Which is leading me to the next question, that Ironsource has eight co-founders Correct. who are still involved with the company to date, which is quite amazing, given that you started in 2010. You know, how do you make sure that everybody's in sync, everybody's still working together and, and being able to reinvent itself to support the company's growth where, where it's at today? Look, to me, this is the most important piece in our in our journey, in our also the trajectory of the company. The fact that we're eight founders, co-founders in, in Island Source. I personally don't know of any company with eight co-founders that have stick together for over a decade, right? All of us are still here in the company, running the company, managing it, and having a lot of fun while doing it. And I for sure can say that without this this very special group of people, Ansos could never achieve what we've uh, what we've achieved so far. We have tremendous amount of, of entrepreneurial power within Island Source. Usually you see a company with one, two, maybe three, four is the maximum I've seen co-founders out there and not all of them stick. So, and I think that's really the secret sauce of our success because being able to stick together really shows that we, A, care about each other, love each other, have tons of respect to each other and that we can give enough room to each other to really to really bring up their best right because the way i look at it every group right a group being two people or more have this group intelligence it and it's never ever the sum of you know the individual intelligence right it's either less or more very often it's less because of you know agendas, hidden agendas, ego, and whatnot. But at very special cases, it can actually be more because there is a magic that happens there that unlock some, like really a special sauce, right? A special ingredient that makes everyone much, much better. And I think this is the story of Iron Source. And to me, uh, the way I look at being the CEO of the company is really being the enabler of the group and then the broader management so that everyone can be themselves, everyone can be, bring in the best they can to influence and to build the company, understanding that we, we don't all have to be the same. We, we even don't all have to agree all the time. We just need to agree on the split of responsibilities. We can advise 
each other on different things or different opinions, but we don't all need to decide everything. We it, it doesn't have to be in consensus. We just need to be committed to best operate the company, understand who is best in what, and trust each other that everyone is doing their best. If we manage to do that, and we I think we did, you come up with a very strong, powerful group that can unlock tremendous value. Love that CEO as chief enabler. I really see it that way. Uh, and yeah. by the way, again, it's not that all CEOs needs to be, they need to be the same, right? I know companies, we all know companies that have one co-founder that is the CEO and the companies are doing amazingly, right? It's, it's a different approach. And for each one, what makes them, what makes them happy, what's make, what makes them thick for me is being the enabler of that group. Got it. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the environment that you're, you're building your company in. You know, it seems like your biggest competitors are, are Google and Facebook. These are not small companies. And, uh, you know, obviously very have, have a lot of smart people and a lot of a lot of capital to deploy. What kind of gave you the confidence to think that, OK, we can, you know, we can build a business in the ecosystem around these companies and, you know, build a successful business, outmaneuver them to the extent they come after us. Just curious how you've thought about competing with much bigger companies like this. Sure. Look, we operate when announcers operate in the app economy. We of course, also compete with the likes of Google and Facebook and a few other very big companies. But we also are partners with them. So uh, Facebook and Google are two of our biggest partners, uh, and we work with them. And the way it works is usually when they operate within a vertical, within a sector, they create a huge momentum, a huge market out there, but they cannot really cover it all. Right? Uh, and I'm generalizing again, right? But Companies like like Google and Facebook are, are if, if they're bringing a product, it's a product that is not necessarily very uh, particular to a specific industry in the Epic. For example, Aronsos managed to be very, very successful, truly a platform of choice for game developers, right? which is the fastest and biggest, uh, fastest growing and biggest part of the app economy in general. We all spend a lot of time playing games on our phones, right? So it's a very well-defined vertical for us, but and we go very deep within our platform, creating all the particularities and all the nuances that that specific category needs. And then we can expand also into other verticals. For a Facebook or for Google, it's a bit more difficult to be very specific, but they for sure create this ecosystem. And then other smaller companies like IronSource and others can take advantage of that and complete the offering, if you will. And we still, again, cooperate with those companies, but you can go deeper into specific verticals that is harder for them to do. It seems like being focused and, uh, you know, re- really making sure you understand what business you're in is, is, uh, as, as an antidote to deal with the big companies. Let's just shift gears again and talk a little bit about the, the SPAC uh, merger. This is not something that uh, th- this is kind of a, you know, a newer phenomenon. We've had a few of our companies at GGV in our portfolio, DSPAC into public companies, uh, companies like Open Door and DraftKings. We have mm-hmm. a few a few that have been announced that haven't yet consummated, Grab being one, for example. But yours is, is to date one of the very biggest that's occurred. And wondering if you could shed some light on the process. What? Why did you decide to go this route? And any, you know, any thoughts you could share on what it's like and whether you'd recommend it for other, other founders? This is, I think, a very important topic. I, 
Look, we were very, very deep into our, uh, let's call it traditional IPO process, like super deep into that process when we got a phone call from, from Toma Bravo. And as you can imagine for, for a company like Alzers, we, we were approached by every SPAC out there. And, and before we launched our traditional IPO process, we did this exercise of deciding whether we want to go uh, public through an IPO or a traditional IPO through a SPAC. And we decided that we're not going to go uh, through a SPAC and we're going to go through a regular IPO. And again, we were very deep in that process. And then Toma Bravo called. Orlando Bravo and Trey from Toma Bravo called. And we took, initially, we took that call because, you know, there are the biggest uh, investors in software. You, if, if they call you, you take that call, especially if it's Orlando. And uh, it's okay, I want to get to know these guys, but it's not that I'm going to uh, shift into doing it through, through a SPAC. But then something happened, right? I, I got to immediately get a feeling of who they are, what they stand for, how they see the trajectory of companies they work with, how they help them uh, become successful. And we sh- I thought we share the same values and the same alignment of interest into how we want to build this. So to me and to us, the, the, the make or break was really around the SPAC sponsor. In this case, in our case, Toma Bravo. And we thought that we can, we can really gain from the best of both worlds, being uh, public, but also doing so with what we think is the best sponsor out there that can really bring a lot of value post-IPO through helping us, for example, being better at M&As, uh, execute them. Alonso's is a fairly acquisitive company. And with them now on board, well, I think even better. But my strong advice to, um, to companies, entrepreneurs, management teams out there is if I had to give one advice on the SPAC versus IPO question, there are multiple pros and cons for each one of the, of the processes. I have a lot of issues with SPACs uh, that I think... There are still a lot of things to uh, technical things to solve there in that process for it to be really perfect. But the one key element you want to get right is choose to do it if you really like the SPAC sponsor, if you really, really want to be partners with them, uh, because they're going to stick around. They're going to be with you and choose the ones that are not uh, just doing it because of you know the, fin- the, the, the arbitrage right there, but if you have an alignment in, in values and in interest in what you want to create, and they can really bring tremendous value. If you choose it right, and there are a few of them out there, go for it, because I think it's a great vehicle for, for companies to go public. Again, assuming you match up and you, you partner with the, with the right SPAC sponsors. I can vouch for Orlando. We've, we've known each other since we were 12 years old, and he's a dear friend and amazing guy. He's a close Orlando is a force of nature, really. He's, uh, I love the guy and I love the, the firm Toma Bravo, but Orlando is, he's, he's always hungry. He always wants to build more. He's, uh, so, uh, smart and really, really, he, I can tell you that, you know, in retrospect, I cannot see myself doing this process with, without him, without them. They've, uh, added tremendous value to Iron Source in the, in this process, really. He's also got a very mean one-handed backhand on the tennis court. Just yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, Tomer, now you're a public company, but you're still growing like a fast-growing startup. 
In fact, you grew 83% during 2020 and ended that year with uh, over $330 million in revenue and $95 million in net profit. What is driving such enormous growth and how do you see it continue in a post-COVID world? So look, the way Ironsource, the way we've built Ironsource is really as, as a platform, is a software platform for the app economy. Again, the, the, the constituents we serve, those app developers and the telco, telco operators. And a big part of our growth is it relies on the fact that we've built a platform because so we constantly add additional solutions to our platform, to our existing customers that already integrated our platform. And since we constantly add additional solutions, we help them grow. Now, the way the business model uh, works is it's always, always fully, fully aligned with uh, the customers we sell. In other words, we help them become a better business. We help them grow their business. And we only benefit as a derivative of that. When they become a better business, when they manage to grow their top line, their bottom line, this is, as a derivative of that, this is how we benefit. And the fact that we constantly add additional solutions, basically growing this flywheel, if you will, of, of uh, business that we can do with our customers, this is how we benefit. And this has been the key driver to our growth, top line, bottom line, and the dollar-based expansion rate. You also like many other uh, companies aspire to have uh, developed a, a product-led model where your growth is coming from your product and your acquisition of customers is, is, is being driven by, you know, the great product. Um, this is a really hard thing to get right uh, for a lot of companies, you know, who perhaps are, you know, more built for traditional customer acquisition through sales and marketing. Uh, you know, what have you learned about kind of the, the, the bottoms up product-led model that you think helps power you guys and you could share wisdom for others on? Yeah. Look, to me, it's also, again, goes back to a question of values. How, what type of company I want to build, right? I want the company that I'm building to be pretty much an extension of ourselves, the, the, the founders group and how we think about culture and how we think about, in analysis, we call it meaningful fun. Right? I want people to come to work to do meaningful things, but I want them to enjoy it. Right? And I've discovered that a bottom-up approach is really much more powerful if, it's re if it really suits you. Again, it's not being judgmental. I'm not saying the top-down approach is not effective. But for us, a bottom-up is much uh, stronger. It's, it's much more correlated to our DNA. If you manage to do it right, then you know basically, again, going back to me defining myself as an enabler, not just, you know, as a CEO who dictates what the company is going to do next, what are the next products, what technology we're going to implement. Because if you build a bottom-up approach, then you basically are building a culture where everyone can come up with the next big idea. I have examples of our sort of divisions that we created from people, random people in the company coming with an idea. At the time, it looks very small. Sometimes it's it can look interesting. Sometimes it can look not very interesting, but we give it a try. If that person is passionate about what uh, uh, his idea is and he managed to convince two, three, four other people that this is not completely nonsense, then we will give it a try. And we will be very, very fast in trying it. We will also be very fast in killing it if it doesn't work. But then you build a culture where people are uh, encouraged to cultivate ideas 
to bring them up, to try to promote them, to try to promote their agendas and make them happen. And this is for sure a key, key attribute of why Alan Thursday is a meaningful, fun place to work at. And this is also why we're uh, successful, I think. That's awesome. You mentioned Irisos being very acquisitive and you actually made six acquisitions, if I have to count right, which obviously worked in your favor. A lot of companies struggle and would love to get your, your advice on when this is the right time for a company to, to make acquisitions in terms of you know diversification and also how do you do it right, especially when you have the, such high values in terms of keeping uh, the company culture so lively and, and happy and, and uh, the founding team driving it. Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story. So even within the very, very, as you can imagine, very time-consuming, exhausting IPO process, you know, it takes several months. In our case, it took almost 10 months. Even within that process where we were all so busy running and executing it, we did two acquisitions, two companies. It's, it's uh, you know, you, it cannot get harder than that, right? But it goes back to, to M&As being a big part of our DNA, right? And uh, I, the way I look at, uh, at M&As is we have, we have a special way of doing it. It's, it can be a subject for a different, a different uh, podcast at the time. We, we also do M&As in a very different way than most companies, but to I, I personally don't know of any company, not even one, that managed to become really, really big just organically. Because if you if you if you become a market leader, then you need to take that advantage and become a market consolidator, understand that you cannot build everything alone. And the key element here is to build that muscle early on. Uh, because very often, if you end up uh, tackling this challenge when you're too big or big, it's harder. You need to build that as part of the, your company culture. Alonsers did the first M&A transaction with, I think we were maybe a year old. And we were seven people acquiring or uh, merging with a company of 35 people. And it was, it was, again, derived from me understanding that we cannot possibly build everything alone. So we might, we better off think about uh, that and start practicing that early on and building that muscle. And of course, we've, we've done bigger and, and more significant M&As as we go, but, but it goes back to us practicing it early on, right? So I very much encourage people to think that way. Uh, because it's an, it's yet another tool in your toolbox, and you better use it. Tomer, another question for you. You know, listeners of the podcast know that uh, Orn and I have invested now a bunch in in uh, companies where the founders are Israeli. Oftentimes, there's there's lots of folks on the ground in Israel. Although these days, every company is really has to be global from day one, and obviously, Israeli companies have that that uh, uh, imperative feel that imperative even faster than most because the 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 end market in Israel is is, is uh, so small it's almost non-existent but you know it, Israel has become really an interesting place uh, over the last couple of years we've seen an acceleration of larger exits or larger public companies being built I think the six I think six other Israeli companies went public in June 2021 alone in addition to to you guys. I, obviously, that that's probably not a pace that's going to continue on a monthly basis, but but it's pretty remarkable what's going on. Curious to get your take, given that you're Israeli. You know what you think is 
what's in the water <laughs> yeah. in, in sure. Tel Aviv? What, what, what's going on? I'm so excited about uh, that phenomena, what you just described, right? Because, you know, a decade, not too long ago, right? Uh, maybe a decade ago, not, not much longer. You know, Israelis were always, the Israeli entrepreneurs were, were, were always very good in building companies very fast, uh, building product, building technologies, but not really growing them to their full potential. And I think it's a combination of, you know, maybe uh, we, the entrepreneurs, were not mature enough. The investors were not mature enough. I, I, I see it as a natural evolution over time. The narrative, when if, if you join a conversation, like an intimate conversation between random founders in Tel Aviv these days, they're, they're, the music, right? You, you hear what, they, what they're talking about, but you also hear the music, not just the words, and you really get a sense that they're all excited about building big companies. They don't even think anymore in the narrative of, hey, I'm going to build this company and I'm going to exit it very quickly and I'm going to make, you know, I don't know, 200, 300 million dollars company. No, that's not interesting anymore. And again, by the way, just to be clear, there is nothing wrong in building small or mid-sized companies and selling them. It's perfectly fine. But be careful to what you really want to do. If you, want, if you really want to build a big company, go all the way. There, there is no reason for Israeli companies not to be uh, market le- worldwide market leaders. I think we've shown that we can do that. And it's a natural evolution, I think, of the state of mind, the psychology and the will of you know the, the Israeli entrepreneurs, the Israeli ecosystem, the investors. And I couldn't be prouder of that. I very much, very, very much look forward to seeing bigger, stronger, newer companies reaching new size, new heights. It's certainly an exciting time. And, uh, you know, we've been fortunate at GGV and, and on the Founder Real Talk podcast, we've had like Roy Mann on from Monday, who's obviously amazing company, also building an incredible business with his co-founder, Ron. And then we've had younger companies as well. You know, some, some great founders of companies mm-hmm. that are really building and thinking very big, whether it be Avi from Orca or Barr from Monte Carlo. We've had, we've had several amazing Israeli founders on who are like you thinking big and maybe, you know, following in your footsteps, hopefully over the years. Okay. So we're, we're at that time, Tomer, it's the speed round. You're in the hot seat. Okay. Say the first thing that comes to mind. (laughs) Okay. First question for you, what book or article do you recommend that you enjoy that you recommend for other founders? Book or article? Yeah. Well, look, there are two that I'm reading at the moment. One is, uh, is a book written by a a very good friend of mine and one of our investors, Daniel Shinar, but that's in Hebrew. It will it won't do any good. But it's uh it's like an espionage book. It's like really amazing. I cannot. I I'm, every night I'm going to sleep so late because I'm reading it. It's like fantastic. But okay, we'll have to, we'll that, have to wait till that one gets tra- translated. I'm, no, I'm I'm telling you, it's uh it, give it one two years and you're gonna see it on Netflix as a as a new series. I, I'm I'm betting on it. But the additional one that I really enjoyed lately, I don't know if you know, if you heard about the book, The Undoing Project. Oh, yeah. By uh, Michael Lewis. On uh, Daniel Kahneman and Michael. Correct. Tewis. Yeah. Correct. I think a must read book for entrepreneurs because it really goes deep into human minds, how we take, how we make decisions, how we make mistakes, what we can learn from it. Really fascinating. Really fascinating. That's a great one. Thank you. Tomer, what is the biggest failure you made with Iron Source? The biggest failure in Iron Source, not replacing the CEO. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think uh, I, I think Iron Source could have expanded 
uh, geographically expanded uh, internationally earlier. Today, we have 11 global offices all over the world. But I think we tackled that uh, a bit too late. We could have uh, started earlier and it would make us more, more successful. It took us time to do it right. Okay. Last question. There's a rumor out there. You, you mentioned that it takes a little bit of crazy to be a founder, particularly when you're saying no to, at a young age, uh, a very large acquisition offer. When you, when you really could use the money, you're living at home. Uh, it takes a little bit of crazy to keep going. We hear that that crazy sometimes can boil over. I guess there's a rumor that you you're a sky, uh, have done some skydiving in your day. <laughs> yeah. so I guess we wanted to confirm that and ask you about skydiving. What's the craziest place you've done it? Why do you do it? Look, to me, jumping off planes is it sounds it sounds to me very very normal. <laughs> really, think about it. Jumping from from plane is is like every kid when you're a kid. Everyone out there wanted to when we were kids wanted to be able to fly, right? Like Superman or like. So uh, we don't need to give up those dreams, right? Uh, skydiving is is pretty much like flying. So I love that. I really really love that. My wife bought me. Uh, present like a tandem jump uh, when I was uh, I think it was on my 30th birthday when I landed I ran to their office to uh, to enroll into this skydiving course that I've uh, that I've done many years ago and I truly loved it today I do um, I don't know if you uh, know what these wind tunnels are that you go because going to skydiving is it takes a lot of time you go you need yeah. to prepare the parachute you need to you know until the plane goes up it goes down it's a big it's a big logistic uh, thing. These wind tunnels, you can go and within a minute you go and you fly and you can fly for minutes and minutes and it basically imitates skydiving. But I love extremes where I love the sensation of uh, being able to fly. So both skydiving and the wind tunnels are, are amazing. And luckily enough, in Israel, we have amazing skydiving clubs over by, by the beach. So you jump into this amazing thing. It's um, it's. Uh, it's really, really, really amazing. And I think being able to to do that, to lose control for just a bit and knowing how to do so and how to uh, enjoy it, losing control for a bit, enjoying it and going back to reality shortly after, I think is essential to being a happy, happier human being, a more successful entrepreneur. Really, you should, you should all try it. Okay, Tomer. Well, that those are great, great way to end the episode. Uh, words to live by. You're clearly you're you're very comfortable flying as a human, and you've also built a company that's flying in Iron Source. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom. I guess to those who are listening and will share my my view that, uh, and, and I'm sure Orin's as well. It's it's no wonder you've built such a great company. Listening to how you're thinking about uh, living your life and building your company. So thank you so much. Lots to learn from this episode, and I know people will love it. Glenn, Oren, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Best of luck to you. Thank you. Thank you, Oren. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, 
Alibaba, Didi, Grab, HelloBike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat. <laughs>